0: We can do about the collective stupidity of government, other than figure out how to exploit it. This. Is an economy of one your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy? The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self interest. Liberty is not given, it must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, and your free market voice of the U.S. This is Greetings and welcome again to an economy of one. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, an economyofone.com. An economy as is our Facebook. An economy of One on Facebook. If you have a question or a comment you want to convey to me, send it to producer at an economyofone.com. Producer at an economy i promise i read all of that stuff and uh try to respond to everything uh that people send in so if you had a comment or question uh just drop me a line uh we got a like, good show today we got uh, a couple guests coming up professor rob nadelson will be joining us uh in a little bit he's uh from the heartland institute And uh, a little bit later in the show, Brett Schaefer from the Heritage Foundation will be joining me. So uh, you want to stay with me for that. Tomorrow is an important day. Tomorrow, the next session, or the next term, I guess they call it, of the United States Supreme Court starts. Now, we've got eight Supreme Court justices, so it's possible that we could have a tie A new justice has not been uh, appointed to the Supreme Court at this time. And that fact alone has altered the types of cases that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear. Now, they only hear about 10% of the cases that reach the Supreme Court. They decide which cases they want to hear and then set up times for oral arguments and and that kind of stuff, and then then rule on them next year. And they they have chosen cases, I think, from looking at the cases that have been announced that they're going to look at, they have chosen cases where they're pretty sure they won't end up in a 4-4 tie. Now, we've said for a long time, I don't think the Supreme Court should be political. It should not be a 4-4 court. But it is. And that's the reality of it. And we've got four justices that are generally on the progressive side and four justices that are generally on the conservative side. To me, it's the Supreme Court that makes this election next month so important. I rarely find myself in a one-issue situation, but I can honestly say that this presidential election to me it boils down to one issue and one issue only and that is the next president of the United States is likely to appoint anywhere from 2 to as many as 4 supreme court justices now these justices are appointed for life they retire when they want to retire there's no no limit to how long they can serve on the court and if more progressive judges are appointed, then that's going to going to sway the court or, or uh, lean the court to the left probably pretty much for the rest of my life. And I think that is very important. I don't think that immigration is as important as this. I think it's important. International trade taxes. None of those issues to me are as important as appointing Supreme Court justices. We've got the oldest Supreme Court we've ever had. These people are living a long time and they're not retiring. So I don't think that when the Constitution was put together by our founding fathers that they really anticipated people living into their 90s And serving on the court all that time I know from my experience with my own parents and and other people um, you know I tend to tend to discount or question the judgment of people that age Uh, the, the simple fact is that many people in that category just don't have the cognitive abilities that somebody in their 40s and 50s do even their 60s so i think it would be good to have term limits or number of years limits on supreme court justices i've even talked to people who suggested that rotate the terms of the supreme court justices so that no matter who's president each president gets to nominate at least one Nominee, so uh, I don't think that's a bad idea. That probably won't happen in my lifetime either, so I'm not too concerned about it. but anyway, they pick the cases they want to rule on, and, like I said, I think they pick cases that they're pretty sure won't end up in a four four split. By the way, if a case does end up in a four four split, then the lower court ruling stays in effect so when, for for things to get to the supreme court there has to be appeals from lower court rulings. so the the last court that ruled before the case goes to the supreme court if the supreme court is 4-4 then that courts ruling stays in effect and is essentially the same as if the supreme court ruled the same as the lower court so it's very important very very important and there's a couple of interesting cases that they have picked on the first is mer versus wisconsin this is a private uh, property rights case and the uh, state of wisconsin is telling people who own land that they can't develop land that's adjacent to the property uh, other property they already own and this is an important case i think because it does involve private property rights there's another case trinity lutheran church of columbia versus uh, paulie and that's about a uh, private school i think it's a christian school religious school not getting the same grant or Uh, essentially a playground product of ground-up tires that the public schools get and uh, they're being denied this simply because their school is part of a religious institution so ground-up tires on the playground has nothing to do with religion and that's been going through the courts all the way up to the Supreme Court one of the ones I'm interested in is a national labor relations board versus sw general Inc and this has to do with the Constitution and the ability of the president to fill vacancies in government roles and without Advice and consent from the Senate so this if you remember this President Obama filled some uh, national labor relations board positions while Congress was technically still in session. So that's an important case. And, you know, there's some cases that I don't think are very important. They're going to rule on trademark and patent issues of cheerleader uniforms. Wow, that's a good use of the the Supreme Court. But the big one that I think is, is uh, very important, and that's the Supreme Court hearing the First Amendment case over the government's trademark denial of names and logos that might be offensive to somebody. And uh, this, this is a very important free speech case because what they're saying is the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is uh, able to turn down applications for a trademark, or a logo based on their opinion that the trademark might disparage or offend someone now that that is the 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 definition of free speech free speech is not for speech you agree with it's for speech that you don't agree with and i'll be anxious to see because just to Put it in perspective. For example, the Washington Redskins, the football team, their logo and name. Technically, the Supreme Court rules against this. Technically, that uh, would not fall under free speech anymore. And the term Redskins would have to be changed. And, And can you imagine? Just imagine how many people would... Be offended, either genuinely or fictitiously, about something in order to have it go away. You know, a lot of people are offended by everything. And uh, quite honestly, I'm offended by nothing. Nothing offends me. Some things frustrate me. I'll uh, I'll, uh, not want to be part of things. But nothing offends me. Nothing can be offensive to me unless I allow it to be. And I don't allow anything to be offensive to me. So uh, um, this is a very important case. Our, our friend John Whitehead, president of the Rutherford Institute, uh, is involved in this, this case. I think the Rutherford Institute is providing some legal advice and, and uh, uh, some support on this. But uh, all the way to the Supreme Court, do we want the government in the Patent and Trademark Office, determining what might, might offend somebody and denying trademarks, service marks, and patents based on that opinion. That is the definition of a slippery slope. That could be critical. That could affect all of us every day in many aspects of our life coming up next we're going to spend a little time with professor rob nadelson he's probably the country's leading scholar on the constitutional amendment procedure he's a senior fellow in constitutional jurisprudence at the heartland institute and the independence institute we're going to talk to him about article five some news there you won't want to miss an economy of one with Gary Rathbun back to an economy of one with Gary Rathbun we're speaking with professor Rob Nadelson He's uh, the country's leading scholar on constitutional amendment procedure and a senior fellow in constitutional jurisprudence at the Heartland Institute and the Independence Institute, where he also heads the Article 5 Information Center. Now, Professor, you just had uh, a simulated Article 5 convention. Uh, most people aren't familiar with the Constitutional Convention and Article 5. Uh, bring us up to speed a little bit on that.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, We were talking before the break about the different ways in which states can check and balance federal power. These ways that James Madison and other founders had laid out and that the states have used all through the years. But one method they've never used, and that's the one that James Madison uh, called the ultimate constitutional tool that the states had. Article five of the Constitution is the part that allows constitutional amendments and. The states have the power to require Congress to call a meeting of representatives from the states. This meeting is not a constitutional convention. That's a misnomer that's been put into our discourse by its enemies. It is given a name by the Constitution. The meeting is called a a convention for proposing amendments. And it was envisioned as a way in which the states could offer constitutional amendments that would reign in the federal government or cure other problems. Uh, and then whatever constitutional amendments this convention proposed would have to be ratified by three quarters of the states. Many people have asked what They asked what this convention is all about, what what would its rules be, what would its procedures be, Um, how many members would there be, how would it work. Mm -hmm. And so an organization called Citizens for Self-Governance had a simulated convention uh, this past week in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, There were 137 commissioners. That's what they call delegates in this function. There were 137 commissioners. The vast majority of them were state legislators. Every state was represented. uh, And over a period of two days, they considered eight different constitutional amendments and actually proposed six. Now, in the real world, those six would actually go to the states for ratification. Of course, this was just a simulation, right. but it told us uh, how this convention would work
0: in the modern world. You know, that's something I think we got to learn more about. I know Mark Levin uh, talks about that a lot. My first thought, and hopefully you can help me with that. My first thought is kind of kind of cynical and, and almost paranoid. Is there a danger with having this type of convention with getting some amendments in the constitution that are really bad i mean is it is it possible uh, possible is it likely that uh we could go from bad to worse on some of this stuff
1: the only real risk that i see is that the risk of the convention could be deadlocked and not propose uh needed amendments there is – I mean, there. I've, I've been convinced from my own studies, and the uh, simulation certainly confirmed this, that there is virt- virtually no chance of the convention exceeding uh, the authority specified by the states. And remember that anything it does has to be approved by, by 38 states anyway. So uh, this idea that the convention could – uh, could uh, uh, go beyond its authority. Really, doesn't have much merit. The the, the the real worry is that they will is that there won't be a sufficient consensus in the convention to address the problems that need to be addressed.
0: Now, given your expertise and involvement, we got about forty five seconds left. Uh, what's the likelihood that an actual Article Five convention will happen?
1: My guess right now is it's about 60-40 in favor because you've yeah. got already got 30, uh, 26 states that have applied for a convention on a balanced budget amendment, and they only need six more. And the Convention of States movement, uh, sponsored by Citizens for Self-Governance, only has eight states, but they're, they're fairly new to the game. And I see that accelerating as people uh, look for solutions to our current uh, uh, constitutional problems.
0: You know, we've been speaking with Professor Rob Nadelson, Senior Fellow in Constitutional Jurisprudence at the Heartland Institute and author of the book, The Original Constitution, What It Actually Said and Meant. Rob, this has been a real treat for me. Uh, This has really been a good conversation. I got about six more pages of of notes to ask you questions on. So I hope we can uh, tap into your time again sometime soon.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm at your beck and call.
0: <laughs> Very good. I appreciate it, Rob. Have a good evening. Bye bye. Bye bye. It, it's, it's just fascinating to me to have an expert like this available. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Brett Schaefer. He is the J. Kingham Fellow in International Regulatory Affairs at the Heritage Foundation, where he analyzes a broad range of foreign policy issues. He's also editor of the 2009 book, Conundrum, The Limits of the United Nations and the Search for Alternatives. Brett, welcome to An Economy of One.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on today.
0: Slightly embarrassed by this, because I really don't know enough, I don't think, about the ICANN transition. I mean, we kind of hear some headlines that uh, President Obama has given away control of the Internet, and Russia is going to control it now, and China, and that kind of stuff. Give us a little bit of background on what ICANN is. I mean, I know it's an acronym, sure. but what, what is this?
2: Okay. Well, uh, your listeners may or may not know this, but the U.S. government uh, provided funding uh, through the Department of Defense, uh, a department called DARPA, which was sort of a, a research element of the Department of Defense, mm-hmm. and worked with academics to create the Internet in the first place. Uh, first, it was electronic packaging going back and forth and you know, communications, and it was mostly a academic and government uh, exercise for the first part of its existence. In the early 1990s, however, the U.S. government Opened it up to commercial participation. And so for the first time, private sector individuals and businesses, uh, civil society groups, NGOs like the Heritage Foundation could participate in the Internet, have websites. And that led to a significant increase in the number of domain names, uh, heritage.org or whatever your uh, website is for your particular radio show. Mm -hmm. And these things outstrip the ability or the interest of the U.S. government in maintaining the sort of phone book for the internet. The connection between the uh, name, the heritage.org, and the internet protocol number behind that name that allows computers to talk to one another. So when you type into your browser, heritage.org, you reach the Heritage Foundation website and not something else. Okay. So there, there's uh, there's sort of like a hidden um, uh, superstructure behind what is what most people see when they type into their browser that allows them to go from one place uh, on their computer to the place that they want to go in terms of uh, another website. And so they created ICANN in 1998, it's the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, to sort of manage this phone book system, at least at the top level. And essentially what happens is ICANN has this master list which says if you type in a .com address, you go to uh, the root server managed by VeriSign, which is the company that handles .com, and from there, uh, it goes to the second level and says um, uh, amazon.com and it sends you to the Amazon uh, site so that you can further go back and forth and and sort of narrow your search so you find out where this um, where the end site that you want to visit actually is okay. and so it's very uh, di- uh, <clears throat> uh, sort of uh, dispersed system but mm-hmm. at the very top level it what ICANN does is it sends you to the first place that you need to go in order to find your end website, and so it's an important function. It's one that's essential for the stability and security uh, of the internet. One that's essential for it to happen. And if it got corrupted, for instance, if that if uh, .com disappeared from that, you would not be able to find your .com uh, websites. And so it's it's essential. It's uh, uh, part of how the internet works, and it's uh, now. Uh, uh, operated by ICANN, but for since 1998, the U.S. government has sort of uh, signed off on changes to that top-level domain name uh, root zone file. The U.S. was doing an oversight function with this and sort of okay. checking the box and making sure that ICANN did what it was supposed to do, that all the proper procedures were followed when it added uh, top-level domain names to the website, that it uh, instructed where um, uh, those... Uh, uh, top level domain names should be resolved to and make sure that that process was followed correctly so that we did not have interruptions in how the internet worked. And what the Obama administration is proposing is pulling the U.S. out of that um, relationship. And now that is going to be, uh, ICANN is going to be overseen by something called a multi stakeholder community, which is going to be businesses, civil society, governments, uh, China, Russia, Iran, etc., cetera, uh, including the U.S. And that entity is going to now oversee ICANN. And so for the past two years, I and others have been working on a process to try and change ICANN's bylaws and make sure that that group, the multi-stakeholder community, can actually hold ICANN accountable.
0: It's still for a non-tech guy. I get the analogy of the phone book. They're really the kind of the hub of the wheel. Of all of us talking to each other on the internet or communicating, connecting with each other on the internet, right? That's right. That's okay. right. What power do they have? I mean, what what can go wrong? I mean, you, you mentioned uh, if the .dot com domain disappears, you know that's going to cause a lot of headaches. That wouldn't be in their best interest, though, would it? Have, I mean, they make money by having all these domain names.
2: That's right. Um, and there's a couple of different concerns. Yes, ICANN has an interest in in doing what it's doing, um, in making sure that the Internet remains stable, secure, resilient, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it has an interest in doing that. But there's also um, other aspects to what ICANN does. Um, First of all, it sells the rights to use um, domain names, and so it's a a very lucrative business. Just Mm -hmm. recently, uh, .web was auctioned off, and, and ICANN got $145 million for that. Wow. Uh, for the use of that. So it's a, it's a very lucrative business that ICANN is involved in. Um, and so ICANN, uh, there's some concern that ICANN may uh, involve itself in some self-dealing here. Mm-hmm. Enriching itself, uh, it has an essentially a monopoly position, and we need to make sure that that doesn't happen, that ICANN is not um, allowing its own interests to supersede the interests of others who use the Internet for business or for individual use.
0: One of the things I was reading about... Yeah that kind of solidified some of the issues for me was because they control the domain names or the uh, icons there the dot coms or whatever that in this transition the United States government would not necessarily have exclusive use of .gov or .mil is that right
2: well that that's a uh, that's a big concern as well um, i mentioned the uh, the financial aspects of this and you don't want, if any of your listeners are, are soccer fans, there was an organization called FIFA that became very yep. corrupt uh, and involved itself in you know, the individuals of the, the FIFA um, decision makers, enriched themselves through their decisions, uh, solicited bribes, and, and that's something that we need to be on guard against in terms of the ICANN ICAN staff and ICANN board members, and we need to make sure that the community can actually uh, adequately see into the institution for what it's doing mm-hmm. and hold it to count if it goes out of line. Um but you mentioned something else which is dot mil and dot gov uh... the u.s. government has controlled these domains since they were created uh... when the u.s. government was overseeing ICANN, uh... this was taken for granted right mm-hmm. uh... the ability of the u.s. to uh, sort of uh, control i in terms of being able to uh... rebid the contract for somebody else ICANN was uh... was concerned that it might not do what it was going to do and so That was a check on ICANN uh, abusing its position. But going forward, we're going to be just like any other government. And .mil and .gov are just domain names, and the U.S. government does not have a legal uh, ownership of those domain names. We raised this concern uh, repeatedly over the past two years since the Obama administration uh, made its announcement. Uh, But the U.S. government... Or the Obama administration officials said we don't we're not concerned about this, and they exchanged letters with ICANN saying, "Hey, if you're going to redesignate this, this is going to impact our national security interests, and we need to be notified about it." And ICAN sent a letter back saying, "Okay, no problem, we'll notify about it, <laughs> and we don't intend to make any changes without your permission." Uh, but that's not a legally enforceable document. That's right. just an exchange of letters. And when uh, and but and so the Obama administration deliberately neglected to get this situation handled before the transition. And I can't understand why that would be. It seems to uh, to me and to other experts to be a pretty important national security uh, concern. Sure. And, and so, it, yes, it's something that could arise down the road where if I can't decide to redesignate it and the U.S. didn't want them to, who's going to be able to decide that? It's an open question right now.
0: Now, it, you know, and maybe you can't answer this question, and, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but mm-hmm. why would... The Obama administration want this to happen. I mean, we, we our, our government is notorious for wanting to control everything, mm-hmm. everywhere in our lives. Why? Why this thing? Why are they they willing to, to open up this can of worms? Uh,
2: for a couple of different reasons. Um, first of all, when this was first, uh, when this was first announced back in 1998, when ICANN was set up, uh, it was supposed to be a private entity within two years. Okay. Uh, and it, that didn't happen. And it didn't happen for a very important reason. It was determined that ICANN was not mature enough as an organization to actually assume these important responsibilities. Uh, in 2014, the Obama administration said, well, we think ICANN is now mature enough to do this. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Just this past summer, there was an independent review panel. It's a, sort of an external uh, arbiter of disputes within ICANN that determined that ICANN didn't even follow its own bylaws, rules, and procedures on a very important case uh, or in a very important application by a company called Dot Registry. Instead, ICANN staff interfered in that uh, application to try and make sure that Dot Registry did not get the domain names that it wanted to get. And so it put its thumb on the scale and instead uh, blocked that for its own reasons because it wanted to open it up for um, uh, broader auctions so that ICANN could get more revenues, mm, okay. or at least that was the determination by DOT Registry uh, in the subsequent news coverage of that. And so this is uh, it's a pretty um, blatant uh, example of ICANN's self-interest overcoming its neutral uh, responsibilities in this case and should be worrying to everybody. Um, And if ICANN is going to violate its bylaws and rules and procedures when they know that this transition could or could not be approved based on its own behavior, what kind of uh, cavalier attitude is going to be exhibited when it knows that it's already got this and the U.S. government is no longer in a position
0: to deny it? Uh, And that's that's a very serious concern. Brett, I need you to hang on for a minute while we take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Brett Schaefer. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We're speaking with Brett Schaefer. He's a Jay Kingham Fellow at the International Regulatory Affairs at the Heritage Foundation, editor of the 2009 book Conundrum, The Limits of the United Nations and the Search for Alternatives. You know, right now, ICANN has its jurisdiction in California. So even after this transition, possibly California law... Uh, and consequently, U.S. law could could help govern it. Anything stopping them from moving to China or, or mm-hmm. Switzerland or Sweden or any place like that?
2: Uh, it's an interesting question to bring up. Um, there are there is a, a, a provision in bylaws that says that ICANN's primary headquarters and seal of office shall be in California. And there's something called the Articles of Incorporation, uh, which says that it's a California nonprofit corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, but these can be changed. Uh, now, the, the process for changing them is fairly steep and fairly difficult. But there are a number of, of individuals uh, in a working group inside of ICANN that are just that are now right now looking at this jurisdiction issue. And one of the topics in that group is whether ICANN should change its uh, place of incorporation. That is something that could happen. I'm not saying it's likely. It would be uh, difficult. It would be expensive because a lot of what ICANN's uh, bylaws uh, are are based on right now is California law, and so a lot of those would have to be changed. But that doesn't mean that countries like China or Russia or Iran or that um, the European uh, uh, Internet groups or other uh, interests don't have a motivation to have ICANN move elsewhere, and there isn't uh, an incentive for them to, to try and press for a change of jurisdiction. It's something that is not going to be decided until next summer for, at the earliest. You know, and it, so we're moving forward the transition if the Obama administration does so, mm-hmm. without knowing the answer to the question that you're asking.
0: I always kind of smile when people say that things could be difficult and and expensive. Well, if if China's writing a big enough check, you can overcome those difficulties pretty easy. You know. So uh, that being said, you know you have your your finger on the pulse of this issue and the Heritage Foundation. Do you think it's likely? that Congress is, is going to uh, block this uh, until we can get some of these issues resolved and, and get a little more comfortable with uh, how this will work?
2: Well, it's interesting you raise that up. I mean, Over the past month, we've seen a lot of senators, a lot of congressmen uh, sign letters and make public statements expressing concerns about this, uh, saying that, yes, this is an incomplete proposal, Yes, there are a lot of outstanding questions about this that need to be answered before we move forward, including the .mil and .gov, including jurisdiction, including uh, whether the community can actually effectively hold ICANN accountable absent U.S. oversight. Mm -hmm. And all these questions remain unanswered, Um, and I I really thought that Congress was uh, going to step forward and and adopt a, uh, a provision in the continuing resolution to fund the government, which would have prevented this, but unfortunately, the Senate um, passed the continuing resolution earlier this week, uh, and it did not have that ICANN uh, prohibition in it to prohibit the transition. And the House just passed last night their own version that also did not have it. So I think it's very unlikely at this point uh, that Congress is going to be able to do anything. And, uh, and I, 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 honestly, I, I think that this is a, uh, an abdication of their responsibility. This is a very serious issue. It needs to be for more fully examined. And it's unfortunate that Congress um, failed to step forward and, and really um, make sure that all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed before this happens. Because the Internet is very important. Yeah. It's important to our security. It's important to our economy. And moving forward with this uh, half-baked proposal is, uh, is putting both of those things in danger, and not just in America. Other countries as well depend very much on the Internet for their economy, for their freedom of speech. And we don't know whether the Internet moving forward is going to be uh, as secure, stable, or the venue for, uh, for a free discourse and exchange of ideas that it, we've, been, we've sort of taken for granted thus far. We've
0: been speaking with Brett Schaefer. He's the J. Kingham Fellow in International Regulatory Affairs at the Heritage Foundation and also editor of the 2009 book, Conundrum, The Limits of the United Nations and the Search for Alternatives. Brad, I really appreciate your time this morning. This is a complex issue. I've got to admit, I didn't know nearly enough about this, and it's been going on for a while, so I feel a little embarrassed by my ignorance on that. But I want to stay on top of this, and I hope we can uh, tap you on the shoulder again and and get some updates.
2: I'd be happy to talk to you about it anytime.
0: I appreciate it. Thanks for your time today. Something else happened this week. It was very interesting. First time it's happened in the uh, Obama presidency, the uh, he vetoed a bill and Congress overrode it. First time ever, the Senate overrode it 97 to 1 and the House overrode it 348 to 77. This was the bill that uh, allowed families of victims of 9 11 to sue essentially Saudi Arabia. Now, it doesn't say Saudi Arabia, it says sue other countries for terrorist activities. And this is a pretty big defeat for President Obama because a lot of Democrats voted for that. In fact, in the Senate, everybody voted for it except Harry Reid. And you have no idea. How much this pains me to say it, but I'm afraid I kind of agree with President Obama on this. I think that this is going to cause America some problems. Now, I understand the victims of 9-11. I understand their families and the need to feel like you have received justice. But turn it around and look at it from other countries' perspective to Americans in their country. What if one of our drones accidentally kills some non-military targets? Or even they say that it killed some non-military targets. Our people could be hauled into a foreign court or a foreign jail. Our United States government could be sued by other countries around the world and we taxpayers have to pay that money. Think about this, think about what it would do to the ability of our president to negotiate to uh, be able to do what we do in other lands to fight terrorism to protect our interest this bill takes away what's called sovereign immunity and I think that that might come back and bite us it's like you said uh, you have no idea you have no idea how much it pains me to agree with president obama and harry reid of all people but we got to think about this people it's going to be law congress overrode the veto so it's going into law but i think we could have some problems with this in the very very near future so i understand the families of the victims and I understand wanting justice. I think it's important we sit back and define justice and whether we'll get justice when the shoe's on the other foot. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country.
2: The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial
1: decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.